0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height,
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff
1: we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mysteries of Swinging London. Rise of the Horror Auteurs. GameStop Goes Carcosa. And the Heart
0: Island Amusement Park.
1: meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas
0: Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the
1: game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures,
0: and 10% off cover price.
1: If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a book and you can cancel any Learn more at atlas-games.com FS2 subscription.
0: It's once more time to gather in the patchouli-scented confines of the gaming hut, where we have uh, a Yardbirds uh, album to use as our GM screen uh, early on when uh, Clapton was in the Yardbirds, and uh, there's a light show Distracting us, preventing us from reading our dice, our uh, miniatures are uh, also confused, but they're getting a a trippy and possibly a folk horror sort of way. Because, Ken, uh, this time around, a beloved Patreon backer, Michael Curtis, asks, My next gumshoe campaign will be set in the swinging London of the 60s and early 70s, focusing on occult happenings in the city. Aside from cribbing ideas from Fall of Delta Green and Book Hands of London, re-watching Dracula AD 1972, and brushing up on my Wheatley, do you have any suggestions for reference sources to help make that period, place, and subculture come alive? And uh, and Ken, we've, uh, we've got a list of things here, and I think we can sort of... Uh, Uh, Do some general tips and ideas and and throw in our own concepts. And so I think, first of all, I would direct people to, I think, an underseen recent documentary called My Generation, directed by David Batty, which has Michael Caine in it uh, recounting uh, his experiences in the 60s against the backdrop of the British and particularly London experience of the 60s. It is interesting in a couple of ways, one of which is Batty uses a really interesting device of having Cain deliver what in a regular archival documentary would just be voiceover, often as a monologue to direct to camera. And Cain, in that very subtle, Michael Cainey sort of way, acts his (laughs) reflections on the 60s, and it's actually extremely moving. It kind of comes apart at the end, because the 60s in the UK don't have the big crescendo and downfall that the US 60s do. Uh, There's no equivalent of Altamont. But the point that it's worth checking out for is the difference in swinging London versus, uh, say, uh, groovy L.A., which is that in the U.K., the uh, 60s are even uh, not just a a youth movement, but they're a class movement. It's the first time when young people of the working classes get to have any influence and fun and joy, and that that is an element that is uh, not so apparent in other versions of the sixties. And of course, France has its own very specific sixties. Yes. Uh, Canada uh, has a very wholesome uh, sort of left nationalistic sixties, but we're uh, in Spain, London. And to get the flavor of that, I think that's a really great sort of contemporary look back as, as a way to uh, get started.
1: Yeah. In, in terms of opening the door to the period, I think that by and large, And I say this in the bibliography to Fall of Delta Green, which you should read all of. But I, I think the best way to get into the period is to watch cultural products from the era you're going into. And even if they're not swinging trippy cultural products, watch as many 60s movies 60s tv shows made or set in london as you possibly can and that means you know you know digging up old you know uh copies of, of maybe the callum or watch danger man or or whatever These kind of the avengers stuff uh, you can uh, roger moore's up. the same the avengers obviously the 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 classic and, and beautiful uh, avengers era you, you watch those and you get a sense of what people thought was, you know, realistic for pulp. And then there's tons of, of British, um, uh, youth movement movies, depending on how deep and weird you want to get into them. And of course, there's a couple of actual, um, sort of, uh, real filmic, I, masterpieces is a strong word necessarily, but they are movies that will grab you, uh, and not let you forget you watched them that sort of bracket the, the period we're talking about. And these are both movies that Robin and I, I think, instantly thought of when, uh, someone comes along with a, a low, uh, hanging curve like, um, what should I watch to get into the swinging sixties? And, uh, blow up, uh, by the great Michelangelo Antonioni, uh, speaking of the yard birds, because of course, famously blow up just sort of stops and we watch the yard birds play because why not? But it is very much about being immersed in that, in, in that milieu and sort of something, off-putting or strange or unusual happens, but it, it takes a while for it to sort of get its way into that, uh, the consciousness of uh, the photographer, the main character, because he's so consumed by the the rest of, of, of what's going on, uh, including, for example, Yardbirds concerts. Yes,
0: it's very it's very much about the just feeling of being there and hanging out, which is why it's the first thing we both thought of. And, mm-hmm. and I would say it is a masterpiece until the mimes show up. Spoiler,
1: mine show up at the end. It's not a plot point. This is the kind of thing that that, uh, a lot of people would say means it's almost a masterpiece, as I said.
0: Yes, and (laughs) the advantage of this is it's a plot you can steal because the idea, it's about uh, the premise as it slowly unfolds, and it's well-known, so I'm also not blowing blowing anything here, is that uh, a fashion photographer... takes a shot which may or may not have a murder recorded on it. Well, uh, perhaps it may or may not have a strange mystical event recorded on it, or that the picture may come and go under the influence of a sorcerer. So this is also an investigative plot line that you can easily uh, pour into your uh, campaign. And, of course, the advantage of doing a uh, homage to blow-up in a role-playing setting is they can fight the mimes at the end, which is the big problem of (laughs) blow-ups.
1: No one fights the mimes. Yes always a problem.
0: Uh, and we were talking about Nicholas Rogue last last week, and that brings us, Ken, to uh, performance uh, with James Fox and
1: uh, Mick Jagger. Yeah. And that is, uh, that, that was a movie that is steeped, actually, in not just Swinging London and sort of Swinging London at its rancid, curdled end, but the occult darkness of Swinging London. It was made by um, uh, Rogue along with a sort of creepy hanger on named david litvinoff who was sort of the gangland advisor he was a buddy with the cray twins and some of the other gang figures so he sort of said oh i think if they were going to be horribly violent they would do this and then there's scenes in performance where you're you you will watch it and you'll say oh that's what ken was talking about and then also there is a sort of a a grotty um uh I don't want to say Satanist because that makes it sound fun, but uh, certainly, you know, a deviltry-gone-spoiled gone aspect to not just Mick Jagger's performance, which is legendary, literally, but the sort of world from which that character and also Mick Jagger, as it transpires, had emerged. And that quality, that sort of openness to the occult, is something that had happened in British uh society back in the teens and twenties. But as you say, Robin, that is now something that is sort of opening a little wider and folks who are not just uh either uh Eaton and Harrow graduates or jumped up middle class climbers are trying out and uh that leads to a an an air of I don't say resentment, but let's say resentment. Sort of takes the 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 happy dancing around in the woods naked uh, for the Sunday uh, tabloids uh, witchcraft of that were also a big thing in the 60s and sort of turns it into the sort of thing that Hammer was responding to with uh, Satanic Rites of Dracula, that sort of uh, consciousness that this sort of door has been opened a little too wide and things have gotten in and people have gotten in that should not have. They've uh, seized the means of occult production. Exactly, w- but without ever being a, a v- overtly a occult a film i mean there's not like a you know a, a goat man or anything but there is a sense that part of what has gone wrong with the characters in the movie is something like that that they've touched something unclean and it's sort of uh, coating them now right yes
0: it's it's a crime drama with a uh, undertone of reality horror and shifting identity and uh, mm-hmm. it, that sort of overtly it seems to be sort of psychedelic in nature but uh, you know as we know it's only only half a hop not even a full hop from the uh, psychedelic uh, to the occult. And uh, you mentioned the craze, and I think you have some other uh, suggestions for uh, reading about the uh, the crime underbelly that goes with uh, swinging London and I think is their source for your your henchmen and uh, possibly even a main antagonist or two.
1: Yeah, the um, there's a lot of criminal histories of London. Some of them are mentioned in Book Hounds of London in the bibliography of that book another place that you should look there's a a book called uh, london vice i believe uh but the craze specifically sort of dominate the imagination of 60s crime london in the same way that they might have or might not have there is now craze revisionism we've gone that far uh dominated the criminal world of 60s london certainly your players will expect to hear about and see the craze and the craze were creepy and weird enough that you uh you can't read about them without having all of your tim powers reflexes going on and saying all right what's really happening the guy that uh, was sort of the craze What do I want to say? Court historian? Emanuensis was a guy named John Pearson, and he worked with the Crays and with the Cray family to write their biography. And he wrote the first biography of the Crays, Profession of Violence, Rise and Fall of the Cray Twins. That came out in 1972, basically a couple of years after they were uh, put away. And then he's written two sequels since then, as I assume more material has come out. But John Pearson is very much the you-were-there voice. Then there's a number of other crime historians who've written about the craze. They are a, you know, if you took... The craze and Jack the Ripper out of all histories of British crime you 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 get it down to one bookshelf really rapidly and then uh, there's a, a an author named Carolyn Allen who's written a book called the craze London which is literally a geographic guide to the career of the craze so if you are doing a sort of bookhounds of London psychogeometry uh, megapolis amancy aspect to your London and why wouldn't you, for gosh sakes? The Craze London is a, is a great resource for that because it is just straight up, you know, here it is. And of course, because no one is allowed to write about the craze without some weird family history. Apparently her dad was the craze barber or something like that. So the craze are very iconic in a, uh, well, a frankly, unhealthy way that as a one, I know nothing about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is also a time when, uh, as we've sort of alluded to already, uh, uh, rock and roll is becoming uh, big in the culture and particular are, are, are sort of uh, big rock stars. Once they get money, uh, they start to buy up occult manuscripts. And so that's something that you can uh, play on there. Uh, the cross currents between the occult and uh, and the, the rock scene obviously involves a lot of decadence. And then you can uh, start to bring in, uh, once you get later into the 70s, then you get your beginnings of metal. And uh, the, the uh, glam scene, of course, is something that I think you're going to want to look at as sort of the, the tail end of the uh, where the all of that energy in the swinging London goes before it, uh, you know, hits uh, the middle of the 70s when you you just can't honestly call it swinging London anymore.
1: Yeah. And um, obviously, the most famous, I think, occult rocker is Jimmy Page, who buys Aleister Crowley's old mansion, bullskin. He owns an occult press, uh, Equinox Books. And then becoming part of Led Zeppelin becomes a much bigger deal. And he gets rid of all that and goes off and does what everyone else is trying to get Satan to do for them for nothing. <laughs> but also the Stones, uh, unsurprisingly, for a band who, who come up with something called their Satanic Majesty's Request, are also big into the occult scene. And a lot of the, the, the folks from that era are are tied into it. In the bibliography of Fall of Delta Green, I recommend Turn Off Your Mind, The Mystic Sixties and the Dark Side of the Age of Aquarius by the great Gary Lockman. That has a couple of chapters on the 60s in in Britain and in that's that sort of rock mysticism sequence. Uh, and then also, because you your characters are going to expect some portion of that scene to materialize in your game or to be relevant to your game, or you are going to want to make a Uh, Marianne faithful, a a fun NPC that everyone gets uh, introduced to the next horrible magician by. Uh, You'll want to read a history of swinging London, of which there are, again, a number, I think, probably, and this is me guessing based on bibliography surfing, but a guy named Sean Allen, who's also written sort of the, the received history of the Brat Pack and who has an index, and so therefore... Uh, wins, uh, two of the points for finding a book has a book called ready, steady, go the smashing rise and giddy fall of swinging London. And that will at least give you a who, what, where, so that when your characters are at a weird occult party in Soho in 1967, uh, you're going to have some names to drop of people who are there. And, uh, and who they should be and would be paying attention to as, uh, occult insiders in, uh, in London of the 1960s. Again, I don't know that it is the greatest book ever written, but it is relatively comprehensive in terms of a primer and, uh, has an index, which is non trivial when you're coming up with stuff on the gaming fly at the last minute.
0: Uh, on, on the genre front, uh, Michael Moorcock's Jerry Cornelius books. High from the period of the uh, late uh, 60s, early 70s. So that sort of uh, hipster London uh, is in there, and you can uh, ransack that for all sorts of uh, plot ideas as those uh, his spy novels basically fall apart under the influence of William S. Burroughs, <laughs> fall apart deliberately. That's the whole point. Uh, but there's a lot yeah. of sort of style there. And uh, speaking of name dropping at parties, you can uh, have your characters. Uh, you know, look over at a party they're at and see a couple of eternal champions giving each other the the side eye. Yep. Um, and finally, can uh, a visit to swinging London and the occult would not be complete without the Highgate Vampire? Which I have we. I'm not sure whether we've done an entire.
1: I don't think we've done a segment, segment the on Highgate before, Vampire,
0: uh, but the the brief version of that, which may inspire a beloved Patreon backer to ask for the full deal. Uh, the nutshell version of that can is
1: is that there were some weird lights and sounds from the highgate the great Highgate Cemetery in London, which uh figures in Dracula and has got a weird gothic vibe to it anyway because it was built in that sort of uh flowering of the Edwardian occult era. Uh, there was some weird lights and some noises, and then self proclaimed occult investigators basically said, "Oh, it's a vampire," and began a What do I want to say? A competitive slanging match in the various tabloids about who was bringing the vampire with their lousy occult investigation and who wasn't. It turned into a, a big deal. I think it caused a rift within the British annoying uh, monster <laughs> hunter community that is still there. Coming soon from
0: Puckering Press, British annoying monster hunters.
1: Yes, and, and so uh, uh, hounds. Both sides, uh, Sean Manchester and David Ferrant, have written uh, their versions of what happened. A real scholar attempted to piece uh the story together in the pages of Folklore magazine and if you look up and I say magazine Folklore Academic Journal and if you look up uh the Highgate Vampire on JSTOR or forgot or even on Wikipedia you'll find a link to that uh to that article and that sort of lays out the 411 but it's basically a bunch of completely unjustified people shouting vampire at each other but obviously beneath that beneath all the hist- the graveyard histrionics perhaps there is an actual vampire about or something else that people merely think is a vampire
0: right or, or a werewolf trying to cover its tracks a werewolf is never going to fit in better than in london because you know he's got the hair for it
1: exactly no one has a haircut and as warren Zevon himself presciently warned us
0: exactly uh well uh, you can all imagine that we're playing uh, that particular song as we uh, head uh, to this commercial and see what lies on the other side The second edition of Mutant City Blues by Robin D. Laws and now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is now in print
1: from Pelgrane Press.
0: Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future
1: where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community.
0: When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a
1: mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call.
0: New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame,
1: a simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities, expanded chase rules, and a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store or use the voucher code Diagram2020 to get 15% off at the Pograin store. The smell of popcorn, the whir of the projector. Uh, we're back inside the Cinema Hut as we go into the 70s. And once more, we make our way past whatever that sticky stuff is on the floor to the center seats in the center aisle and settle down for episode nine of our Horror essential series, Robin. And who thought we'd have gotten this far past all the the Nosferatus and and Draculas and other Draculas? And here we are. I'm
0: not sure I did the math. We may run over our Oscars segment.
1: (laughs) Well, the Oscars themselves perhaps may may merely be a tribute to prior horror years and not uh, the Oscars as we know them. Who can say? But we have a lot of movies we we left off as the horror auteur is becoming a thing. Tobe Hooper with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre does not quite become the greatest horror auteur of of the era. That uh, title is uh, yet to be determined. But another contender comes along, a, a young kid named Steven Spielberg in 1975, fresh off a... Taught horror uh, minor masterpiece in Duel, he then creates a film that literally changes the face of cinema forever, as well as scaring the bejesus out of everyone within a hundred miles of the ocean. We're talking about Jaws, uh, one of the great monster movies of all time, one of the great movies of all time. Again, one of those films that is is so good that you forget, oh right, it's also a horror film.
0: It, it didn't just change horror, it changed the film industry. It, exactly. It the, the first giant blockbuster. Uh, I remember, for example, in my small city that I grew up in, the uh, movie theater had nothing else to offer that summer but Jaws. That's the only movie that you could go and see in my hometown. And I, uh, at the time, didn't see it because one of my friends saw it and recounted every single beat of the movie in a big long monologue that I was unable to stop him. <laughs> so it's many years later when I actually saw Jaws. It's a uh, not just a the masterpiece of suspense that you remember, but still very much an American new wave film. The, mm-hmm. uh, the scenes of uh, people behaving are uh, quite well observed and have this almost sort of a verite style to it, which, of course, Uh, creates a realism that that ratchets up the horror. Uh, It's got sort of an iconic uh, triple act of uh, performers uh, with Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw and Roy Scheider. And uh, famously, the fact that the shark didn't work made the movie better. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, we don't think of it as a horror movie because a shark is a real animal. Uh, The shark's uh, do not acquire supernatural powers until a, one of the sequels. <laughs> In retrospect, I think we know that Bruce the shark from the original Jaws had supernatural powers because he's related to the other shark that takes revenge on his behalf later. Right. But like the Duc de Rochelot, sometimes just doesn't use his magical powers because he was getting overconfident. He didn't, he didn't think he needed them.
1: He, he figured uh, who, who can't who can't take on Richard Dreyfus for gosh sakes.
0: Right. Uh, so this is a film that takes all of the sort of American film school looking back on classic Hollywood, the realism of the French new wave that has been introduced and takes all of those things and creates something so successful that it will soon smash them all forever into <laughs> a new era of poppy comic book inspired uh, uh, movies. But uh, if you want to see expert use of suspense beats and uh, be afraid of your bathtub, uh, Jaws uh, is the one yep. uh, we mentioned Brian to Palma in the last episode, and he certainly continues on. Uh, strong into the 70s and is one of those people. Unlike Spielberg, we don't think of him specifically as a horror filmmaker, although you can argue that his films either are musicals or horror movies or both, whatever their putative genre is. <laughs> but De Palme is also going to bring in another big trend of the 70s and especially the 80s, which is the Stephen King film, right? It's an entire subgenre. Of uh, horror uh, films based on the works of Stephen King, and uh, De Palma brings us Carrie in 1976, also still very experimental, very much in that American New Wave style, but also a, a giant hit. Uh, ends by establishing uh, one of the uh, classic. Cinematic horror tropes that uh, will uh, soon uh, be uh, brought back again and again and beaten like a dead horse, and also brings back the uh, from the '50s the uh, focus on teenage horror, uh, which is also going to be a big uh, determining factor. And again, has a uh, made stars uh, made a movie star out of Travolta uh, and uh, Sissy Spacek. Of course, that's an iconic performance from her. It is deeply psychologically disturbing as well as uh, you know, just uh, genuinely creepy as a, as a horror film and is another landmark that then es- establishes the idea that horror films can be interesting works by interesting directors and also big commercial hits.
1: Yeah. We, we often think of Stephen King's influence on the movies being all one way, but Carrie also made Stephen King a guaranteed bookstore presence. Carrie changed the face of horror in the same way that the dr no films changed the face of spy novels in that uh they made james bond the default and carrie made stephen king horror the default so for all of the faults of stephen king the good things about stephen king the sort of common man voice the 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 observed daily life all of that stuff it had been part of sort of cheap exploitation horror because they couldn't afford to have actual horror. Uh, lots of scenes of people talking and just going to the diner until finally the monsters show up. But Carrie, I think, sort of pulls it into the mainstream, not just of, of horror film, but also in the mainstream of horror literature. So, Carrie has a, a back effect on, on horror writing by make, by elevating Stephen King to this uh, supreme figure that uh, suddenly every publishing company in the world wants one of, and that is where uh, all of the, the the great horror boom of the late 70s, early 80s comes from, is the fact that uh, Carrie made uh, 30 times its budget at the box office and got two Oscar nominations. And it was a terrific film, and I think, you know, at the time even, people were sort of stunned and amazed that a horror film was great, but uh, it held up in a way that a lot of De Palma's stuff doesn't necessarily, and is genuinely, as you say, super unsettling. It is one of my wife's favorite films, and so I have seen it more times than I would like to see Carrie, quite frankly, but there we are. Uh, speaking of movies that are entirely unsettling, and not at all like Stephen King, in that no... Tiny scintilla of normal human life ever enters it. (laughs) <laughs> the masterpiece yeah, Dario Argento he
0: he can't shoot normal human interaction so it contains it contains none.
1: none and this because it has the least of that is the best of his films it is suspiria uh, except no substitutes Dario Argento's suspiria 1977 a movie that seems to have been shot entirely through a series of radioactive juju bees uh, in terms of the, the 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 light gels the story is almost risibly non-existent it's a young girl goes to a house where she thinks she's going to learn ballet, but instead falls into the hands of A Coven of Witches. And by hands, I mean just whatever Argento has lying around the house of A Coven of Witches. It it is a haunted house film. It is a witchcraft film. It is a old dark house film. It is a uh, sort of a uh, suspense uh, hunting one young girl. It's a gothic. It's a, it's a psychedelic movie. It's all those things. Still all a slasher the, film. A, still a slasher film. All through the literally unique, uh, mind's eye of Dario Argento. And not even Dario Argento, I think, is Dario Argento. Certainly not anymore. But I think Suspiria, he makes another few films that I at least would rank as A films. But Suspiria is, the absolute high watermark of Dario being Dario. And if, as some people associated with this podcast do, you do not groove to our Dario, then you are going to hate Suspiria with a fiery passion. And uh, Robin, on that topic, what do you got for us?
0: I thought that this would be the Argento movie that I would be able to like because it's got a supernatural theme rather than just a person murdering people with black gloves and a knife. And I talked about, you know, my objections to Argento last time around. And so I'll just say this that, you know, as you point out, it's just a series of scenes that hit really hard. Uh, like all of his films, the opening is way more interesting and exciting. And I was on board for the ending than anything later. And in fact, because it makes no sense whatsoever, you could actually improve this film by swapping the last two reels and the first two reels and putting the beginning at the end. And it would improve it immensely. So let me go on to talk about another film from 1977 that I uh, do wholeheartedly recommend as an essential of horror. Another uh, director has uh, come back in the 70s after establishing himself earlier. That's George A. Romero. And this is Martin, his neo-realist vampire film. It's one of those uh, is-he-or-isn't-he movies. It's got this deep sense of grotty uh, realism, and it is the definitely the absurdist Downfall of the vampire, the reduction of him to uh, that figure to his uh, greasiest, uh, most insignificant, yet still rooted in uh, the American city of uh, th- that you can possibly uh, reduce a vampire to.
1: Yeah, I, I, I am a big fan of Martin as well. This may be my, like my second favorite Romero film after another one we're going to talk about during this uh, episode, but. When I watched Martin, it was relatively late in my career as a film goer, and I had heard of it, but I had not uh, had it praised sufficiently. So I walked in thinking, I will see a second rank uh, Romero that will be an interesting take on the vampire. And I came out saying, I don't know why people even mention Abel Farrar as the addiction when they're talking about naturalist vampire movies. Martin is so great and so amazing and such a terrific performance by not just the main actor, but by all the sort of pittsburgh randos that romero got to to play the family in in martin it's a uh it's it's just a tour de force and it's it's everything good about neorealism without being as boring as dirt it's just an amazing piece of work and to an extent you sort of feel sad that romero then went back to the zombie well and after you know one more masterpiece Kind of disappeared doing self parody for the rest of his career because Martin is a movie that really shows what he could have done had he kept, you know, sort of going in the, in the direction where he, he might have gone with the, the Pittsburgh neorealist, uh, urban, uh, horror scene. Uh, it, it's, it's just a, an amazingly good vampire movie. It's an amazingly good sort of movie about the question of the supernatural. And it's just a terrific film in and of its own right.
0: Uh, so next, speaking of changing the face of horror, Ken.
1: Right, yes, yeah, speaking of, we, we arrive at another great horror auteur, and again, we're just chock-a-block with them here in the 70s. A young fella named John Carpenter, having done a couple of uh, good films before, decides to make a, uh, a, a movie movie, possibly basing it on uh the Gialli, i think you can definitely see that he's attempting to make an american giallo a little bit uh with this film he noodles around comes up with a a a score and says I don't know uh, that I need to pay a guy to do a score. This score is so good. And cleverly casts Donald Pleasance, who I think is the secret weapon of the Halloween franchise. Yes, of course, we're talking about Halloween 1978. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, also a, a terrific get for him, no question. But Donald Pleasance, because he is such a hysterical goof throughout the whole film, immediately centers you on the supernatural nature of michael myers the 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 mask killer and uh everything about the film lives up to donald pleasance's acting but without donald pleasance there as the sort of um and he plays the psychiatrist who treated michael myers at the insane asylum blah 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 um without dr loomis without pleasance we are we are in a situation where dracula actually could not have held the film you needed the van helsing and the the van helsing being terrified lets us the audience have permission to believe this is more than just a, a grotty story about a guy who hates babysitters, that it becomes this sort of epical deep tap into the wellsprings of American horror that Halloween became. And again, changed the face of film because not only was it a, a artistic masterpiece, it also made a million dollars. And if you're, Best friend Kevin had cable in the 70s and 80s, the way that my best friend Kevin did. You saw Halloween a lot. Right. And by million dollars, we mean many millions of dollars. Many, many millions of dollars. Yes. Uh, It was on, and and not just uh, at Halloween, but all the time it was there and it became the template, I think. Well, I don't think everyone thinks, for a whole tranche of American horror filmmaking And uh, even now, uh, not only are they going back to the Halloween well forever, but also I think people are still in conversation with that movie in a way that they aren't from a lot of films from 1978. I mean, Jaws, as great as it was, people, uh, when they make their giant shark movies, they are no longer in conversation with Jaws. They were in conversation with one of the terrible sequels. But Halloween is still up there getting it done. And it, again, still works. Again, uh, Sheila, giant fan of Halloween. We watch that uh, every Halloween and I have not seen Halloween as often as I would like, and I've probably seen it 45 times. It's it's a peerless masterpiece, and uh, John Carpenter deserves every single plot that he has gotten, and more for it. Right.
0: It heavily relies on the POV from the point of view of the killer, which is taken from uh, Giallo, but then uh, radically expanded with the use of Steadicam. Uh, it, as you point out, it has plaisance to sort of parachute in a gothic element, but otherwise takes the sort of absurd, stylish, ultra fashionable uh, settings of Giallo and, and places them in an American suburb with the level of uh, naturalism. It uh, brings back in that, uh, that teen element and it introduces the, the giant trope of the final girl, the one who survives and who turns the knife on the killer. And it also depersonalizes the monster that Michael Myers in the first one, and they add all of these levels of mythology later on, including ones that completely undercut the first movie. But uh, he is a vampire without personality. He's a mask. He's he's a William Shatner mask, as a matter of fact. Yes. Um, And it is only Pleasant who invests him with um, menace that uh, like real serial killers, uh, Michael Myers is uh, sort of a, a, a dullard, and uh, he is not interesting, uh, but the atmosphere that is conjured up around him is uh, interesting. Now we get to something where the the social context is even more overt. Uh, we're referring to the second Romero film on our list this time, which of course is Dawn of the Dead, which is his uh, middle and uh, arguably strongest in Uh, his trilogy of original trilogy of zombie films. He attacks on more later. And this is the famous one where the possible victims of the zombies escape to a shopping mall and it becomes a uh, delightfully overstated uh, satire of uh, consumerism. But I think uh, those of us going through uh, today's emergencies, uh, I think the early sequences where you see that. Uh, how uh, the population has adjusted to the zombie panic by going into denial and trying to keep their loved ones in their houses and the uh, the sort of utter social breakdown that has as much to do with the living as it does with the dead. I think that that uh, really hits home. And also it's I think it's Romero's uh, best made and best shot film from a sort of a, a visual point of view and where he's placing the camera and how he's moving the camera and also a... A new vista in uh, in gore effects brought to us by Tom Savini.
1: Yeah, he's got he's got a professional special effects guy for I guess the first time, and Tom Savini turns out to have been one of the greats, and and so it it, uh, get fairly early in his career, and Romero hooks up with him to do the zombie effects, and it is a masterpiece of practical effects. All the set pieces work. There, there's almost no dead space, no fat in the film. It's, it's just a terrific movie. And as you say, Robin, it is a movie where Romero makes manifest his theory of human nature, which he also walks back in the later zombie films, much to their detriment. But, uh, the notion that mankind is a stupid, ignorant herd animal <laughs> comes back over and over in this film as well as in, The rest of his overa and it is nowhere more piquant and nowhere does it work better, even as you say at a slightly, um, uh, overt register than it does in Dawn of the Dead. It's, it's again, even if there'd never been Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead would still be a horror essential and a, and a horror masterpiece. Real briefly, uh, we need to brush past and ignore, uh, Friday the 13th, directed by Sean Cunningham, 1979. The other foundational slasher film, the one that set the, um, uh, the standards for turning the slasher film explicitly into what the Gialli had always been Subliminally, or, um, secretly, or behind their hand, I guess it wasn't that big a secret, but just a series of excuses to murder women. And while Freddy the 13th is dull and unimaginative in a lot of ways, uh, it certainly spent a lot of time thinking about what sort of things you might have around the house you could murder someone with. And, uh, that sort of led to a lot more of it and became a template for horror in a way even that Halloween did not. And Friday the 13th spawned a million billion imitators, almost all of them terrible. Some of them with one or two scenes where you could say, well, maybe that was worth it. But by and large, it's a, um, I don't say a, a empty uh, mine Robin, but one with not a lot of uh, gold in it.
0: Yeah. We're, I'm also with you that we're acknowledging this as an incredibly influential film that we're not really recommending Um, If you just think of the amount of plastic that was used to manufacture VHS tapes that contained the sequels, the original film, and its ocean of imitators, because this lays down a formula that you can just, and anybody can repeat endlessly, it's cheap to go and find a camp somewhere, an outdoor location where you can go and kill off a lot of uh, teenagers with gore effects, and uh, it Made a ton of money, its imitators made a ton of money. It changed the economics of horror um and it created a an, and in doing so that enabled another generation of uh auteurs to sort of come along because suddenly because it, it
1: provided that ecosystem in which they could learn. It was sort of like if you can't have Roger corman let's have a whole um ecosystem of Roger corman
0: right, and so you get a, a lot of garbage and then you know later you get the evil dead right. so uh speaking of things that are not garbage, but another uh masterpiece not just of uh horror but of cinema in general is alien ridley scott 1979 it's the outer space movie as haunted house movie or perhaps vice versa it basically takes a formula uh, established in the thing and then uh, repeated uh, many a time over on doctor who which is a group of people in an installation who are slowly being picked off by a monster Uh, but it uh, shifts it into uh, through the extreme uh, filmmaking skills of Ridley Scott, who is an interesting auteur in that uh, what he's saying is not always apparent or interesting, but he didn't need to have anything interesting to say because he just uh, has uh, control of all the plastic elements of yeah. the film. And- I mean,
1: even in the worst alien sequels, there will be just heart stoppingly gorgeous shots. Ridley Scott is just. I think he's maybe a, a a prodigy or a savant of framing shots and and setting up the lighting and the camera and everything else. And Alien itself, uh, because this is him before he becomes as good at that, but is still working on just raw talent, is 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 an amazing film to watch, even if you've seen it. Uh, and this is something of a theme. Uh, it is as though my wife became very, very fond of horror in the late 70s. Another one of Sheila's favorite films and another film that I've therefore seen a lot, but also a film that I think is probably more Lovecraftian than most horror films. And almost explicitly so the, the uh, screenwriter, Dan O'Bannon, big Lovecraftian fan, wrote this explicitly as a sort of what if Lovecraft, but in space sort of thing, uh, inspired by a lot of stuff among them. uh, Mario Bava's uh, not-as-seminal film Planet of the Vampires, which is still well worth watching. And H.R. Geiger, who famously designs the monster, another big Lovecraft fan. So you've got a lot of Lovecraftian elements burbling along exactly where they belong, below the surface. And uh, Ridley Scott, of course, onto that puts this just truly uh, epical understanding of of filmmaking and directing the suspense beats have never been done better in any other film than they are in Alien and obviously of course uh Sigourney Weaver a a a great piece of good luck uh in terms of the main casting and is again I think with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis does a lot to sort of cement the final girl notion and in this case in a film that is even better than Halloween uh and even more powerfully um uh grounded in uh, you talk about a film with a social subtext. This is very much a uh, the working class is being screwed over by the man, by the capitalists uh, film, a, a subtext that gets even louder in the later alien films and uh, is very present here. So you've got that sort of uh Stephen Kingy blue collar feel. Uh, to the film. You've got uh, all of the, the, the Lovecraftian elements, and then onto that, you layer this beautiful, cool uh, SF uh, vision in a junky looking spaceship. It's it's just a, a masterpiece all the way around.
0: Right, and possibly the, the best cast film in all of horror, because not just Sigourney Weaver, but uh, Ian Holm, Tom Skerritt, John Hurt, Yafit Kato, Veronica Cartwright, it's just everybody is a, a great character actor at the top of their uh, game. And and that also conveys so much of the uh, storytelling and makes you, uh, because you actually care about everybody mm-hmm. that makes it all the more uh, terrifying. This is not a whole bunch of disposable uh, campers who you want to see killed. This is uh, people uh, creating basically from not very much a sense of real lived in people who know each other and uh, are used to being around each other and, uh, it's it's really, you can't think of an aspect of cinema where that film uh, doesn't work. And uh, in our list of, uh, as we begin to inter- introduce horror auteurs, uh, we come to uh, Canada's own, Toronto's own, uh, David Cronenberg. Uh, he's had some earlier films, which are also uh, worth uh, checking out for their, uh, sometimes uh, they are technically crude or don't have the greatest acting, but they uh, have their own Uh, shock value. In some ways, they're even more shocking. Uh, His early ones, uh, Rabbit and Shivers, uh, I think are uh, more shocking now than they they were at the time. (laughs) Um, His first sort of mature masterpiece is The Brood, which is the film where he uh, takes his own uh, personal trauma of uh, undergoing a, a, a messy, hostile divorce and turns it into this a weird body horror tale of someone who is able to produce weird blobby uh, demon children to go out and, and attack and kill and express atavistic hatred. So this is uh, very much uh, in his uh, sort of Freudian uh, wheelhouse. All of Cronenberg's films are Freudian to one degree or another, except his film about Freud. Mm-hmm. And uh, the brood is the, the first sign of him beginning to, um, marshal, uh, all of his sort of junky exploitation uh, instincts uh, and uh, and then transcend them into something that is real and about people and all the more jarring and upsetting for it.
1: Yeah. um, Unlike Robin, I am not going to say that because I get the squicks from David Cronenberg that I think he's a bad filmmaker. He's a terrific filmmaker, but... With the exception of scanners, most Cronenberg films have exactly the effect that Cronenberg wants of making me say no thank you and stop watching them. The Brood is. Just unsettling on every level and not to my mind, in my place, the kind of unsettling that draws you in. This is an actively repellent film uh, while still being a terrific movie and, and very, very effective. But I will am going to dub Robin Speaker to Cronenbergs probably for the rest of this whole series. <laughs> but yeah, The Brood works and uh, unlike a lot of films, it, it works to actively make you not want to watch The Brood. Our final classic auteur is a, a, like Hitchcock, a great filmmaker who enters horror says, oh, I can do this, does it perfectly, and then wanders away again. Stanley Kubrick, who makes a Stephen King film and apparently devotes himself to tearing the guts out of the Stephen King novel he bases it on. It's The Shining, which Kubrick turns into a chilly gaze at uh, human uh, frailty and failure, and also, by the way, makes a stirring atmospheric masterpiece, uh, The Shining 1980 I I think, again, it's one of those films that uh, if you've seen it, there's so much about it works so perfectly that it's hard to pick out any one aspect. Everyone loves the Overlook Hotel. It's one of the few times set design actually gets its due. I think people recognize the quality of obsession that Kubrick puts into the sets and uh, the set designers respond to. Obviously, Jack Nicholson is amazing as uh haunted writer Jack Torrance, Shelley Duvall terrific as his wife. It's basically a two-hander between them, and then a number of ghosts, possibly dredged out of uh, Jack Torrance's uh, subconscious, but more probably attached to the evil, evil Overlook Hotel. It's It's just one of the great Haunted House films ever made, one of the great films ever made, and it's in, even in Kubrick's over, I think it's one of the great Kubrick films ever made. Do you have anything intelligent to say about this film, Robin, besides me just saying literally what anyone could get from watching The Shining? Well, some of the
0: things that are interesting about it are, first of all, it carries Kubrick's themes and tones of uh, dehumanization and his uh, cosmic a horror which is part of all of his films whether they're heist films or uh, period dramas or in this case an actual horror film the the mankind uh, being dwarfed and, and doomed and of course as you uh say uh that he has stripped out almost all of the genre mythology that stephen king uh, puts into it because king has a quite involved world of uh ghosts and and demons and psychic people and stuff and and uh uh Which will later be picked up by a sequel that you warned me off of, uh, <laughs> but here it's like, what do I need in order to tell this story? So he pulls out everything except the idea that there's uh there are two psychics in the house, and uh there's ghosts and possibly some earlier ambiguous eternally recurrent uh crime, the use of uh modernist music uh and uh helicopter shots in Steadicam uh really make this film. This is the one where Steadicam Utterly comes into its own with those shots of Danny on his plastic tricycle going down those very distinctly carpeted halls. It's one of those films that is full of fetishizable cinema elements and is hypnotically watchable, even in the scenes that are deliberately, as in some of the scenes in Psycho, shot in order to be kind of drained of energy and apparently banal, but of course that is just an over- Uh, Lay to the uh, banality of uh, evil and of humanity, and a sign that something quite off kilter uh, is about to proceed. Uh, That brings us to 1980, a turn of the decade is a pretty good place to turn. And uh, next, I I guess we should quickly talk about why it is that this generation of directors, so many of them become horror auteurs, and that is because they, like the previous generation of uh, American New Wave directors, and there's overlap between them, have been looking at other films, Uh, they've been studying film, they are responding to uh, genre in a very specific way, and now there is a commercial apparatus for relatively low-budget films that will sometimes, like Halloween or Friday the 13th, break through and make a mint. And so, uh, whereas uh, Kubrick is coming in and spending a lot of money on his horror films, a lot of these are relatively inexpensive. And the The VHS economy is going to continue to drive horror uh, when we return next week for Horror Essentials 10, and we'll see how far into the 80s we get if we just pick the classics.
1: The best of Ask the is now available at Drive RPG. All issues of Phoenix magazine since twenty thirteen. That's spelled.
0: and six guns role playing game, Western. How do you say
1: slap leather, Varmint, in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Asphageln on Drive Through. Keep this podcast groovy, mate, by joining such paisley clad Patreon backers as Zazz,
0: Lionel P. Haybreak, Tony Kemp, Kevin J. Maroney, Arjen Potzma, and Brian Malcolm.
1: the teletype chatters, the radio blares announcements ripped from the headlines. And when we rip things from the headlines, we don't just opine about them as suits our political-cultural agendas. No, we perform a service. We rip things out of the headlines, and we color them with some kind of fun horror color or adventure color, turn them into adventures. In this case, the color is yellow, and we're ripping out the headline about the GameStop bidness, uh, which very, 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 very briefly is that a hedge fund had identified GameStop as a dead company walking, had short sold it to make uh, money off of its collapse. And a bunch of goofs on Reddit said, we think that we can put the short squeeze on these guys. And which is when you buy stock against someone's short sell you then force the price up the person who was thinking they were going to make money selling short loses money they have to get in deeper it becomes a whole cyclical thing it makes tiny hedge funds very very mad when people do it and large hedge funds don't care because they got money on both sides of the game that was the GameStop story ladies and gentlemen or you can spend 95 hours watching financial tv but what it created was briefly not just an amazing group of memes on the internet, not just the sudden desire by me to watch uh, Dark Knight Rises again, but also sort of <laughs> a, uh, I, I guess this would be the Wall Street Journal's reality horror column, right, Robin? Where suddenly left is is right, up is down, backwards is forwards. It also incidentally saved AMC. They took a similar uh, run by, by nerds and f- cleverly took that money, bought back all their debt. So if you go see a movie after the pandemic, you can thank nerds on Reddit for that. Anyway, but it, it created um a, a world where nothing seemed to hold true briefly. And that of right. course is the world of reality horror. Right.
0: But that, that that's the nub of why this seems like it might become an an idea for uh the Yellow King This Is Normal Now, which is the game in of the four uh Yellow King role-playing game sequences that takes the things of the modern day and finds a way to to twist them back into the uh the Carcosan uh, reality horror. Uh, that we all know and love, and so uh, you're absolutely right. It's that fact that it's suddenly another thing seems to be spinning out of control. Is the detail about that that something utterly bonkers is is happening that um, makes it a potential uh, for a yellow king horror? And now, of course, the end of that story is you <laughs> know bad like guys win. <laughs> yeah, like like every speculative venture, the people who get in late get crushed. And then there are dead enders and, peop- and prophecy fails people who are like, no, no, the stock will rise again. And, and I think that's what brings us to one of our possible ways of turning this into an actual horror scenario involving The King in Yellow, because the idea that belief triumphs over reality is uh, baked into this story. And so what happens if there is a, uh, say, a, a cargo cult built from the people who refuse to believe that they've really uh, lost their money and uh, that somehow the fact that uh, other bigger hedge funds came along and won and the man triumph that can't possibly be and that uh, sense of looking for the next big hit looking to recover what can be the next possible stock that we can pump and dump and recover or uh, be the early ones in on uh, who is this group of people and how does do supernatural forces uh, work upon them? And so part of the idea could then be that the forces from Carcosa come and they uh, identify a company that they can use, not necessarily just to uh, raise uh, funds for themselves AMC style, but somehow to continue to build the sense of, of reality uh, breakage. And so what happens if sort of the notional idea of uh, money losing its value or gaining its value and then losing it, what happens if people all start uh, buying into, uh, for example, let's say uh, the Yellow Sign Company, a company that appears on the uh, stock exchange and suddenly uh, some people go, I don't remember this company. And, oh, but you go to the mall and there's all these Yellow Sign stores, but what, what do they sell there? Oh, well, you know they have uh consumer goods and things that are all in yellow and
1: popular yellow sign merchandise popular yellow sign merchandise of the sort that the kids like,
0: yeah, and so you know, oh, and influencers are are pumping this stock, and so that which this,
1: which again is is no less logical than you know Spencer's gifts or hot topic
0: exactly, and just as you're propagating the yellow sign brand, you want to propagate among other people, right you're drawing in. A Mr. Wild's army of people to go in. Well, we need recruits to go in and pump the stock up. And so uh, people who go to the stores, see the yellow sign and then go and want to buy the stock. Uh, Then uh, there has to be some sort of uh, supernatural or uh, supernatural political effect. And so uh, the people who are, you know, first in, they make a lot of money. But what are they what are they doing with the money that they uh, pull out of the market? Well, they're beginning to build, you know, their yellow sign. Uh, shaped portals in their backyards in which uh, uh, things are going to start coming through. And so the uh, hook for this, then, is that uh, one of the uh, player characters and in this game, you are playing relatively normal people. One of your friends or relatives, uh, suddenly you realize, oh, oh, yeah, uh, you know how your aunt was uh, building a college fund for you? Well, she's put it all into the Yellow Sign Company. And uh, you go and try and get, get it out of the yellow sign, and then you see the trail that uh, she's followed and the cult that she's joined. And then uh, there's uh, some sort of great working uh, is the obvious way to end any scenario with a, a cult aspect in it. But since the uh, these manifestations can change reality, uh, they may indeed be building back in time a yellow king chain. So when you first look into this, oh, well, this chain was first established in... Uh, the year two thousand and five as a lifestyle brand, and then you find oh no wait this this goes back to the nineteen nineties and uh, you may in fact be uh, sort of drawn uh, through portals through a uh, since we're talking about mall horror earlier it could be that you are pulled back uh, through a succession of uh, uh, in, into an eighties mall and then uh, seventy you're brought to a 70s strip mall and you're uh, then you're in a thirties department store and you're being pulled. Further and further back, perhaps even to the Belle Epoque, which was the original uh, foundation of the department store as we know it. Yes. so that you're back being back to
1: the Bon Marche in in Paris. Yeah,
0: so you're being yanked back through uh, the history of retail and finance because you've uh, made the mistake of uh, uh, reading too many of the uh, stock statistics, which. Uh, you know, when you perform the math on them, they they turn out to also be a, a yellow sign of their own.
1: The spin that I'd put on it is that part of the, I think part of the the mimetic power of the GameStop nonsense and a lot of these other stores was that these were brands that were very much part of the cultural landscape of people a little bit younger than me of that sort of the late X early millennial generation and the notion that your childhood was being torn apart by financial werewolves was i think a big impetus for these redditors to get involved and, and go after GameStop stop in a way that they wouldn't have gone after i don't know carrier air conditioning or something and so the notion of having these building blocks of your memory being torn apart is very is it, again part of what makes it yellow king horror and so the notion i think is even more fun if it is the notion that as parts of of the 90s mall culture are being disassembled, that the yellow sign is not so much, it's one of the stocks that you're involved in, it's that as those go away, the reality is shifted, and what was a GameStop was always a yellow sign store, and that the yellow sign, uh the Carcosa is not trying to create people who will go out and buy yellow sign merch, what it is, is creating the absence of Carcosa as a place that then Carcosa can flow into. And so the climate, certainly the the time traveling back through the history of of mall retail is is a terrific hook, but another one might be you go to that abandoned wilderness that is the mall on the outskirts of town, the big one that was going to be huge in 2002 and then the corner the corner stores didn't come and the other stores and now it's just a sea of dead yellow sign stores that the Chess King is a yellow sign store and the Spencer's Gifts is a yellow sign store and the Orange Julius is a yellow sign store and that all of the whole mall is a dead space. It's uh literally on the shores of of the Lake of Holly and And that if it was, you know, dead to Carcosa in the past, it can be alive to Carcosa in the present. And that's where the working uh, takes place. The notion that your past is literally being replaced by Carcosa as opposed to figuratively merely replaced by um, uh, hedge funds.
0: Right. And like a virus, yellow sign merchandise can be replacing the other merchandise that people love and whether that Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, the your sports team suddenly becomes the San Francisco yellows or the Kansas City Crowns, and all of your Star Wars figures start to turn into Camilla and Casilda figures, and that uh, the idea of people fear their loved childhood pop culture being overwritten, uh, well, indeed, this could be, uh, you know, the uh, the mass mind phenomenon that creates the uh, psychic power to effectuate that. And, uh, uh, you know, how you how you deal with that, how you find the center, the locus of this, conspiracy and destroy it? Is it a matter of going back and uncovering who the first investor was in order to, you know, oh, well, if we find the first 12 people to jump in, uh, identify them on this uh, investment board, we can find them and, and maybe hit them possibly or convince them to, to go away or throw them into, use a counter magic to, to draw them away. And of course, when you arrive at their giant mansion, there's uh big hounds with masked pallid faces uh, and, uh, and then you can uh, sort of possibly get your uh, timeline back in order for, for a while. And speaking of a while, uh, we have a while of a commercial to uh, dip our toes into before reaching our final segment.
1: Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the beltway.
0: With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to
1: a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hardscrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the internet, To the lonely chambers of every human heart. From the toxic legacy of the Cold War. To the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out.
0: The clacking of chronodons and the whirring of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that his bosses at Time Incorporated use him to send him back into history, to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Gerald Sears asks, how would Ken use his time machine to change history to ensure that Solomon Riley's amusement park on Hard Island is, at least temporarily, successful? So this, uh, of course, raises the question of who was uh, Solomon Riley, uh, known uh, somewhat mockingly as Millionaire Riley, uh, and what was his amusement park on Hard Island? Uh, he uh, was a uh, black man. He was born in the British West Indies. And in the uh, 1920s, uh, he was able to use the fact that he was married to a white woman to acquire a property portfolio which would otherwise have been unavailable to him uh, and he bought up white owned areas in Harlem and then rented them to black tenants and some credit this spate of uh, property development to uh, creating the environment that allowed for the uh, Harlem uh, renaissance but of course Andrew Carnegie was not known as big bucks carnegie uh, and the fact that uh, there was a uh, a black man with money uh, was seen as, as a paradox and alarming to the establishment, but uh, even more alarming, he uh, attempted to uh, create an amusement park for black patrons on uh, what is called Hart Island uh, in the Bronx. It's one of the islands out sort of near but all not all that near to. Uh, rikers island
1: it's sort of around the point from rikers island yeah. and heading out into the long island sound really so it has
0: a, a long and interesting history as well in the 1860s it was a civil war pow camp and since 1869 it has been new york's potter's field and so by the time our story begins all but four acres of it are owned by the city And uh, they continue to bury people there to this day. It's a work detail that uh, inmates at Rikers Island get. They get put on boats and sent over to this other island to to dig graves. There's apparently 850,000 people uh, buried there. But in 1922, there's a guy named John Hunter, and he offers to sell the last four acres of hard island uh, to the city. And they say, no, no, thanks. What are you going to do with this four acres in the middle of a giant island graveyard that also has a prison for the aged and infirm. And later, this decision to not do that, Ken, is called Highland's Folly, which is named after the mayor, John Francis Highland. So I suspect, Ken, that as you try to make the Hard Island amusement park happen, that you're going to have to somehow deal with an otherwise unwilling and intransigent city uh, government, which is perhaps I don't know, corrupt enough for you to somehow leave her somehow.
1: Yeah, I, I guess we'll just have to cross our fingers and hope that we're during those one vanishingly small periods in New York history where you can bribe people to do things. Oh, that would be all of the periods. Yeah, this the, the simple way is to get uh, enough city councilmen to uh, look the other way that Riley gets his, his, his operation going. New York at this point is probably volatile enough that you can use the threat of um, uh, shifting black votes to keep it going once it's going, because obviously Coney Island is at the far other end of New York. It, it didn't let black people onto it anyway. The black population of the Bronx and increasingly of Harlem need a place that's near them to go there. Uh, the other big amusement parks up in that area in Rye, for example, don't allow black people either. So the presence of an amusement park would be a big economic boost and a big uh, morale boost and would be very popular with that community. And that community votes and it votes increasingly over the twenties and thirties, in fact, and I I feel like uh, it would not be too hard to get it under the protection of uh, whoever the ward boss is or or whatever they have in New York, if they're wards, but the uh, under the protection of whichever uh, city councilman it is that is uh, representing Harlem and therefore uh, has some degree of power uh, on the city council, uh, it's probably a series of of drunken dinners at Delmonico's that uh, are involved uh, over a period of uh, four or five years. So lots of trips in the time machine back to 1920s New York. Oh no! Why, why, Robin? Why must I have to do this?
0: Right. So, so what happens in the in in our timeline is that in uh, 1924, uh, Riley buys uh, these four acres of land from John Hunter for thirty five thousand dollars, which is serious money in 1924 Mm -hmm. and in 25 he announces his plan to build the amusement park he starts to build stuff he builds a dance hall eight boarding houses a boardwalk Uh, he creates a bathing pavilion and he announces that he's going to buy a fleet of motorboats to take people from the bronx over to the island and back and that's when the establishment starts looking for reasons to not have this Um, (laughs) and the excuse is officials at the at the prison on the island go well this could cause a means of escape. Our prisoners could escape and get on the boats. This, of course, is perhaps somewhat trumped up because, as I said before, it's, the prison here is not Rikers, but it's a prison for the aged and infirm prisoners. So the uh, threat of mass escapes by dangerous elderly uh, or ill prisoners, of
1: course, is. There is also a workhouse for juvenile inmates on Hart's Island at the time, which is a slightly more plausible. Uh, argument and they are bringing Riker's prisoners over because that's who digs the graves in Potter's field. So it's not a thousand percent trumped up, but it is certainly the thin reed on which they bend the, Oh, no, we can't have a black amusement park, which right. is their real problem is that they don't want that to happen. They, they don't want a, a separate area, uh, that is out of white control uh, because that sort of defeats the whole purpose of having segregation is it's not that they they have to live on their own. It's that they have to be economically predated upon by white landlords, et cetera, et cetera. So, the problem of outside uh, black investment is, I mean, it's the problem all over America in the 20s, 30s, 50s today. But the immediate uh, excuse they use is, as you say, the escaping prisoners. It becomes a big deal and Quietly, they condemn the property and uh, they pay uh, Riley one hundred and forty-four thousand dollars, which is a nice return on an investment. And they shut it down. They they bulldoze the structures and uh, eventually turn it into a sewage treatment plant to show just what they think of the idea of the South Tip of Heart Island being fun. It is, you know, made as though it were never there. Very very biblical. Uh, the degree of punishment. Um, Riley uh, sort of tries again to make a, a black beach at Throg's Neck, and that is just dropped by straight up vigilantes. Um, and that is uh, white ethnics in the uh, neighborhood of Throg's Neck who don't want uh, black people on their beach. And there's a great deal of throwdown. He doesn't have the ability to uh, push it farther. The Depression comes along uh, in 1929, so his investments start losing value. He doesn't have the money to fight it in court. And then he dies in 1936, leaving the whole question moot.
0: Right. So it seems like the thing that you've got to intervene for is the amusement park rather than the beach because there's no neighbors to... Mm Come around with baseball bats to prevent
1: that. From right. Happening. There's literally the opposite of neighbors. There's a bunch of dead people and some elderly prisoners. And the occasional guy from Rikers who, whatever his problems are, he's not going to try and shut down the amusement park. He, he's going to try and sneak into it and ride the teacups before he gets on one of these boats. Right. And I, I assume this would only be black prisoners at Rikers who would be able to escape this way. Right. I mean, you don't have the six foot tall Swedish guy is able to sneak through the crowds at uh, uh Solomon Riley's well, well I'm not sure if they were thinking that yeah. in, in that detailed <laughs> way. Far and, I guess right, they figure
0: yeah. if anybody gets one of those sixty boats, they can, they can, they can they get They sneak off. Right. Yeah.
1: Anyway, uh yeah, the, the the presence of the of of the amusement park does as as you say, it depends on, you know, turning enough uh city council heads that it becomes a fait accompli. And once it's generating money and and positive things for the neighborhood that then will get the attention of whatever the political boss is that runs harlem at the time and that will keep it alive as long as amusement parks ever stay alive which in terms of inner city amusement parks runs until the early 60s and the invention of television and then everyone stops caring And, and so you would have about a good 30 year run i think uh, on riley's amusement park you know i think 26 to 63 26 to 66 is not an impossible guess which means that uh you'd have a lot of really great movies set there you'd have you know uh first sort of the um what they what they called race movies movies that were done exclusively for for black audiences but then i i think you absolutely would have sort of you know american uh new wave uh film auteurs uh, doing scenes of urban realism that that pass through the, the 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 juxtaposition of an amusement park, a prison, and a graveyard. It's like, what what do you what more do you want? Movies, right? right.
0: And, and if Riley if Riley establishes this place in the twenties and it keeps going into the thirties, presumably there's going to be a band shell. So uh, Duke Ellington can, can play there, Count Basie, all of the uh, Cab Calloway. You've got all of the uh, the musical greats of that period. So that can be sort of a a center for the arts during the the summertime. And maybe
1: you get a great Zora Neale Hurston book about carnies.
0: Yeah. You know, and if it survives long enough for Coney Island to then be desegregated, of course, the main benefit would just be, you know, people get to have the recreation that they uh, need and want. Mm -hmm. And so either way, uh, this would then, I guess, allow later, uh, it's going to fall into decrepitude in the early sixties. And then perhaps, you know, the, the abandoned amusement park can then become, A a set for a a horror movie, you can bring in uh, the idea of all of the the ghosts of the uh, decades and decades of uh, New Yorkers who uh, died unknown and unclaimed, including the voice actor who played Peter Pan wound up there because he hit the skids in, in the 30s. And so it would sort of be an interesting sort of eerie place uh, where you might imagine the sorts of things going on in a Carnival of Souls, uh, but with a black cast.
1: Right. Uh, the the elliptonic implications, obviously, the presence of a uh, a carnival, a graveyard, and a prison. That, it's like half the tarot deck right there, certainly. You have Heart's Island, uh, which is named, by the way, no one knows why. Maybe it's after a guy named Heart. Maybe it's because it's shaped like a little heart. Who can say? Uh, maybe it's named because someone saw a deer there. It is spelled like the deer. So. It is spelled like the deer, but, but how, again, how did people spelled a lot of islands? things That's strange in the 1700s. And so the, the notion that the Hart's Island becomes one of the mystical nexi of New York, I think, is, is not too far-fetched uh, to imagine. Um, you could certainly, I, I would say, Insert that as a seamless alternate history effect into your, even your very, very sober-sided modern day game of occult horror. And uh, I think if you say this to non-New Yorkers who don't listen to this podcast, darn them anyway, but it'd be, you can say, oh, the old uh, abandoned amusement park on Hearts Island, no one is going to, you know, blink an eye at you. And you can, uh, you can have all of these adventures in your game, even without it actually having happened in history. You,
0: you could even do it in a regular New York game, and I bet your players wouldn't look it up. They would just right. say, yeah, oh, Hard Island, that sounds,
1: that that sounds legit. Sounds like a legitimate thing. And so the, the possibilities of the, uh, of the timeline, I think we've agreed it's basically just some cool art will be made and a great deal of fun will be had that was not otherwise had. And then the, uh, uh, the elliptony pretty much uh, speaks for itself. I just think if you look into the history of old amusement parks, you know, the Pacific Ocean Park in, in LA, Riverview in Chicago, there's a park called Norumbega Park, uh, near Boston that, that was closed down again in roughly the time we were positing this will be closed down early sixties. Um, I think that old amusement parks are, are full of, of game fun. They're full of, intentional uh really loud semiotics that that can seem magical (laughs) and indeed is magical uh to the extent magic is a thing and
0: you don't want semiotics and clowns uh in the same environment though that's but
1: you're gonna have them you're gonna gonna have them robin that's just the way of the world so yeah i think that the more forgotten amusement parks you can add and then forget the better your setting will be and i'm gonna say that's a that's a universal case, and it's not just for uh, Solomon Riley, God bless him, the man who wanted more fun for people who lived in the Bronx. And surely that's something we can all get behind now.
0: Right. Well, if, if there's a thing that your time machine is rarely tasked to produce, it's happiness. And uh, yeah. uh, this time, I, I think maybe we, uh, you could produce some happiness and, uh, and some ice cream for some kids.
1: Happiness, ice cream, semiotic clowns, the whole. The oh, whole, the whole oh you ruined match. it. We, we got in this podcast now. <laughs> all right.
0: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors: Atlas Games, Palgrain Press, Askfagelm, Arc Dream, Dork Tower, and Pro Fantasy
1: Software. Music as always is by Jim Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Canon Robin.
0: Keep this podcast roller coaster firmly on its rails by joining beloved backers:
1: Drew Eichols, Daniel Markwig, Will Ferguson, and Fifi Pyot. Jan Zaleski and Lewis R. Evans.
0: Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin.
1: Comment on your Zoom workplace as our reluctant Phoenix says, oh no, not this again. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See
0: you next time when once again,
1: we will talk about
0: stuff.